We'll begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're surrounded by competing voices clamoring for our attention, and we are so easily misled by them. Help us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us in your word today, and show us Christ. Lead us to him, make us like him, and may your voice fill our ears and captivate our hearts and drown out every other voice that we may know you. To the praise of your great name, in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. In A Tramp for Christ, Corey Ten Boom writes, I thought of the night in the concentration camp when my sister Betsy had talked with me about our plans for the future. Corey, we should never worry about money, she said. God is willing to supply our every need. Many years later, when I was faced with a severe hardship, I was forced to remember this principle. I felt I had received a direct command from the Lord to go to Russia. The price of our tickets and expenses would be 5,000 guilders. However, when I looked at my checkbook, I found I, found I had only 3,000 guilders in the bank. Lord, I prayed, what must I do? I heard a very clear directive from God, give away 2,000 guilders. Oh no, Lord, I said, as I sat at my table in my apartment in Barnholland. You did not understand. I did not say I wanted to give away 2,000 guilders. I said I needed someone to give me that amount so I could go to Russia. He waited for me to get through my objections, and then he repeated his original command. This time, though, it was even more specific. I was to give 2,000 guilders to a certain mission group that had an immediate need. I could not understand how anyone's need could be more immediate than my own, but foregoing the wisdom of the wise, I sat down and wrote a check to that mission group, depleting my bank account down to 1,000 guilders. As we study our text today, we will see that just as Corey experienced, God requires us to give of ourselves from a place of faith. Today's passage is yet another charge against Israel in this divine trial. God is holding his covenant people to account, and they are falling short. The consequence for not upholding their covenant requirements is economic hardship and the absence of God's presence from their midst. Two weeks ago, we saw their desperate desire for God to come near and bring justice against the wicked people around them. God responded that he would come in his timing, but it wouldn't just be to judge their neighbors, but them as well. Today's passage continues with God promising to return to them if only they will first return to him. But to do so, the people will need to recognize that the drought, pestilence, and general economic hardship they're suffering is their own doing. Furthermore, they need to obey in giving to God the full tithe, even though their economic situation makes that hard. For giving in faith is exactly what God wants of them. Our first division is a call to return. In this first half of the passage, we see a faithful God calling unfaithful Israel to return to him by giving the full tithe. Let's begin by looking at Malachi 3, 6 through 10a. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. How shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God begins by referring to himself as Yahweh, or Lord in all caps in your Bible. Yahweh means I am who I am. This, this is the name he had revealed to Moses at Mount Horeb in Exodus 3. There God uses both Yahweh and the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, in answer to whom is sending Moses. Yes, this name indicates God's self-sufficiency, but it is also about a trueness of his eternal character, which will hold him to faithfulness to the covenant promises he has made, which leads right into God's next self-descriptor, that he does not change. Theologians call this attribute of God his immutability. This is one of my favorite attributes of God. I've moved so many times in my life. Friends have come and gone. Now it seems like the world around us, all the things we took for granted, are changing. What a comfort it is that God does not change. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, describes it thus. In this world where men forget us, change their attitude towards us as their private interests dictate, and revise their opinion of us for the slightest cause, is it not a source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to do changes not, that his attitude towards us now is the same as it was in eternity past and will be in eternity to come. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. In this passage, though Israel was unfaithful to God generation after generation and had thus broken the covenant between them, God's unchanging faithfulness meant that though they deserved to be consumed, they were not. Psalm 89 verses 33 to 34 affirms this commitment. I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant nor alter the word that went forth from my lips. The people of Malachi's time seem to have lost sight of who God was, but they have also lost sight of who they are. God refers to this unfaithful generation as children of Jacob. Why? It is twofold. First, it is to point back to the promises God made to Jacob, which in his faithfulness he is upholding. Genesis 28:15 is the heart of that promise. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Secondly, by calling them children of Jacob, God is implying Israel is a chip off the old block. They are cunning and cheat to get ahead. How does an unchanging God respond to sinners such as these? Tozer goes on in his chapter on immutability to say, His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out sinful man from the eastward garden. And his attitude towards the sinner is the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We see just this in our passage today. 
God tells Israel they have turned aside from his statutes and have not kept them, a serious offense with serious consequences, since a holy God cannot have fellowship with sinners. And yet, and yet, in his very next breath, God invites Israel to return to him and promises to then return to them. This is a call to repentance, but such a sweet and welcoming call it is. What a picture of God's heart persistently desiring relationship with his rebellious, covenant-breaking, insolent people. In this passage, we see a juxtaposition between God's unchanging nature and sinful man's need to change. For sinners, change is a treasure, one of God's wonderful gifts to us. Immutability is a blessedly incommunicable attribute that belongs only to God. Tozer expounds on what mutability means for us. For human beings, the whole possibility of redemption lies in their ability to change. To move across from one sort of person to another is the essence of repentance. The liar becomes truthful, the thief honest, the lewd pure, the proud humble. The whole moral texture of the life is altered. The thoughts, the desires, the, the affections are transformed, and the man is no longer what he had been before. Praise be to our mutably good God for working this change in us. Or, as Charles Wesley said, and all things as they, pro as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. Yet repentance can be hard. Though asked with nothing close to a humble or contrite heart, Israel responds with the question, how? How do we return? Although at first glance what comes next does not appear to be an answer, follow the logic as God condescends to reply. He begins by showing them with great clarity how they are sinning. He says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Of course, in one sense, nothing can get by our omnipotent and omniscient God. No one can sneak something past him. Yet, because he has given us a measure of free will, the ability to disobey, Israel has managed to mug God. Indeed, the word here for rob is of a violent theft, something along the lines of a mugging. At this point, some quiver of conscience should have held their tongue. But Israel brazenly asks, how have we robbed you? Which is exactly what God wanted them to ask. Though their rationalizing may delude Israel into thinking they had quietly shorted God, in actuality, before the all-seeing eyes of God, they had blatantly taken what was rightfully his. We learn in our passage that this was in the form of incomplete tithes and contributions. This follows in the pattern we have already seen of Malachi of, of broken promises and giving fine rams. And in, let me try this again. This follows in the pattern we have already seen in Malachi of broken promises to give fine rams, and instead blind and lame animals are brought in sacrifice. It is important to note that although the tithes were something Israel was commanded to give, the contributions were voluntary, voluntary gifts including giving of materials to make the tabernacle, atonement money, and a portion of an offering set aside for the priests. If contributions were voluntary, how could they be incomplete? 
It was in the heart attitude that they were lacking. And even to give the required tenth without a humble, reverent heart would have deemed it incomplete. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The giving of tithes and contributions from the heart was ultimately an act of worship and praise. To understand this more, let's look back at the first instance of a tithe in the Bible. In Genesis 14, Abraham gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a prefiguration of Christ. In this and other accounts, the pattern is established of giving a portion in humble reverence to one's superior, be it a king or one's God. However, for both the tithes and contributions, Israel was grudgingly going through the motions, but they were not giving from the heart. They were not giving out of worship. They were not giving out of gratitude. They were not giving in the light of who God is and what he had promised to them. In other words, they were not giving out of faith. And God requires us to give of ourselves from a place of faith. Let's unpack more of why Israel was sinning. During this time, we know Israel was struggling financially. Further, they saw the nations around them flourishing, despite the fact that they did not worship God and were, in fact, wicked. Today's passage follows right on the heels of their complaint against God that not only was he not just, but he was rewarding the wicked. Israel had lost faith in God's justice and certainly that he would come in righteous judgment. So, too, they had lost their faith in his provision. To give a tenth when you are flourishing is easy compared to giving a tenth when it appears that you have nothing to spare. These people were desperate. They were at the point of divorcing their Hebrew wives in order to remarry women from the nations around them in order to make an economic ties. But God's standards didn't change in their challenging circumstances. In their deluded view of the situation, how easy it must have been to rationalize, not giving the full tithe, and certainly not giving wholeheartedly. Rationalizing is dangerous. I should know. It is a sin that I have struggled with for years and still have to catch myself from indulging in. Maybe you do too. Ultimately, it is a form of deception. But what makes it so dangerous is that the primary person deceived is ourselves. We have to fight the sin of rationalizing with a steadfast dedication to holiness, a pursuit of integrity, an examining of our motivations, and ultimately a determination to live by faith rather than fear. If Israel had examined their motives in not giving in full, it would have in part been out of fear of not having ends meet. They had forgotten that God had always been and would continue to be their provider. Obedience would have required them to trust God to provide for the future instead of holding on to what they had now and putting their trust in it. The object of their faith was misplaced. They were tight-fisted with their money because it was what they looked to for security. The only way to open-handed generosity is to trust in God's provision. Ironically, their very efforts to secure prosperity by their own means brought them under the curse of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28 lays out the terms of breaking the covenant. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Though Israel suffered from these very things, they tried to deny their culpability and turn the blame for their struggles to God. But in telling them you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, God makes it crystal clear where the blame lies. Don't we all too often blame others for the consequences of our own sins? This is a pattern we learned from our first parents as Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. Our honest God, our perfect judge, helps us to see where the blame truly lies. He does this out of love. He does this out of a desire for reconciliation. He does this so that we can confess our sin, repent, and return to him. Which brings us back to Israel's question, how shall we return? After laying before them the truth of their sin, God tells them to bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Repentance is more than just sorrow over our sins. It means a change to obedience. Just as God was calling Israel to obey his laws regarding tithes during an economically challenging time, so too God requires us to give of ourselves from a place of faith. Sometimes obedience makes sense. Sometimes it is easy. But sometimes it seems impossible and requires great sacrifice. But this is where the rubber meets the road, ladies. This is where we show that we really do trust his goodness, wisdom, and provision. In our passage, our Lord held Israel to account in regards to the tithe, but it was really about withholding their hearts. The tithe is a sort of litmus test of our hearts. In our lesson, we read about times of revival, when the outpouring of praise took the form of giving. And although we are no longer held to the same Old Testament laws of tithing, Tithing as an act of praise, gratitude, and worship remains true. Think of the woman who gave her last penny. Our God delighted in it not because of its monetary value, but because of the truth it reflected in her devotion. Remember also the widow with only enough flour and oil to make one last meal for herself and her son before they died of starvation. And when Elisha came out of faith, she gave of the little she had. What a glorious testimony of her faith and the one who proves to be faithful as her flour and oil never ran out. So our giving is a good and apt place to examine if we're obeying from a place of faith. This holds true for monetary giving as well as all kinds of giving of ourselves. For in all manifestations of giving, God delights to have us trust in his provision. 
We can only do this when we put fear aside. This is our first truth. God calls his people to live by faith rather than fear. What are you holding back from giving fully to God? What fear is keeping you from obeying God? And how does God's word address that fear? What will you do this week to obey in faith? Consider serving in a ministry like our ESL program. This would require obedience and faith from many of us. Maybe fears of inadequacy or lack of time hold you back. Yet if God is calling you to this or another ministry, you need to obey in faith. If you are a parent, it can be obedience to press on in parenting, even when you feel you have reached the end of your wisdom, patience, or energy. You press on day by day in the faith that you have all the strength, wisdom, and love of the Holy Spirit within you. For those of you with grown children, it may be persevering and praying for them from a place of faith rather than fear. Our second division, the return upon the return, will examine the consequences of giving out of a place of faith. In this latter half of our passage, God invites Israel to test his provision and see if it isn't overwhelmingly generous. Malachi 3, 10b through 12. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test. Put God to the test? But Deuteronomy 16.16 says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Let's take a closer look at what happened at Massa and how it is different from God's command here in Malachi. Then the sons of Israel camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us out? out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. And he named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means quarrel, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Did you catch the tone of their testing? It was quarrelsome or complaining. Whereas the test in Malachi is to be one of faith. Professor Ian Dukit and Matthew Harmon help explain the difference. Normally, testing God is a bad idea. In academic terms, God is the one who writes the exams. He does not sit for exams that we write for him. Testing God usually implies or expresses unbelief. For this reason, Satan sought to lure Jesus into testing God by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. But sometimes, as here... God actually invites his people to test him. He invites them to trust his word, to act in faith, 
and to step out and see whether he keeps his promises. Another distinction between the two kinds of testing is who initiates. In prohibited faithless testing, it is a means to delay obedience as you insist that God act first. Faithful testing, however, requires God's people to act in faith, trusting God's promises. This may be counterintuitive. It may appear foolish to the world. It is determined obedience, bolstered by faith in a promise-keeping God, and thus it is not unfounded faith. So, what exactly is this test? That Israel would obey in giving the full tithe to fill God's storehouse, and then won't God prove faithful in literally showering them with blessings, rain and protection from harmful pests, even promising that the vine would produce. In this, God was affirming his covenant promises of blessing his people should they keep his statutes. What a promise. And how sweet are those words, until there is no more need. Doesn't this ring true because of how the passage began with an unchanging God who never gives up on pursuing his people? For their ultimate need is a relationship with him. They had been holding back their hearts from him. They had blamed him and didn't believe that he would keep his promises for justice and provision. This manifested itself in disobedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. And faithless obedience is not pleasing to God. As we have seen, God requires us to give of ourselves from a place of faith. In the test, then, God had shown them the way from curse to blessing. If they recognized their sin and obeyed in faith, they would know his glorious, lavish provision, provision so great that all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. As we have seen in our homework, God's working in our lives, not to mention throughout history, is for the purpose of revealing his glory. Here, too, God paints a picture of blessing that will reveal his glory not only to Israel, but the nations beyond If only they would return to him, God would turn the current situation on its head. Then instead of envying the apparent blessings of the nations around them, Israel would know the true blessing of God, and the nations would be the ones coveting what they had. While the test here in Malachi was for a statute and a subsequent blessing that no longer applies to us under the new covenant, the truths that we learn about the heart of our unchanging God still apply. God still wants us to give out of a place of faith, and God is still the one who provides for all, all our real needs, especially our spiritual needs. When my husband lost his job right as the two-week quarantine to flatten the curve began, Second Peter 1-3 was an anchor to my soul. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us out of his own glory and goodness. We were looking at a probable year of job searching, possibly needing to sell our house, change schools for our children, etc. Yet whatever God had planned for our circumstances, I knew that the most important things would be supplied. He would still give us the strength to live holy lives pleasing to him. And let us not forget the great riches we have learned that we have in Christ from our study of Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing, including God's choosing us, adopting us, 
extending his grace to us, blessing us, redeeming us, forgiving us, making known to us the mystery of his will, giving us an inheritance, and sealing us with the Holy Spirit. Again, last week, we were awed by the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask to think. How rich we are in the blessings of our bountiful King. We have learned that he is Jehovah Jireh, our great provider. And James 1.17 declares, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God is immutably a gift giver, even giving us the greatest of all gifts, his own Son. With the giving of that greatest of all gifts, the pattern of God's blessing was forever changed. Under the new covenant, we no longer have to keep the law to receive God's blessings. Rather, we have a Savior who obeyed all of the law, who gave the full tithe and contribution, holding nothing back, even to the point of giving his very life. He took the curse that we deserved in order to bless us until we had no more need. He made a way for us to return to God so that God returns to us. Above and beyond, even that, we learned last week, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, changing us to be like our Savior, changing our hearts from holding back in fear to living in faith. As the Holy Spirit brings God's great promises to mind, we are enabled to obey fully. As the Holy Spirit bears witness to God's great love for us, We are emboldened to come into his presence. Oh, how God lavishly provides. Our second truth is we can dare to obey because God will lavishly provide. What would faith in God's lavish provision for your need open your hands to give? What passages about God's generosity to you encourage you to give in full? How can your trust in God's provision be a witness to those around you? Faith in God's lavish provision may look like you opening your home to another child. It may mean forgiving someone that you feel you have no means within yourself to do so. Or perhaps supporting a too-many orphan instead of having your retirement savings securely in place. When you do these things, others will see and wonder. Their gaze will be drawn to the object of your faith. They will have to see that your trust is in God and you trust him to be your provider. Ladies, our obedience and faith brings God glory. It is an act of worship. So how could we not? In conclusion, Betsy's words proved true. God is willing to supply our every need. Corey Ten Boom resumes her story. Later that day, I, Corey, went down to see if I had received any mail. Among the letters was one from the American publishing company that was to publish The Hiding Place. For some months, I had been writing back and forth, and only two weeks before, I had finally signed the contract. I brought the letter back upstairs and opened it. As I pulled it out, a check fluttered to the floor. It was an advance from the publisher, money that I did not expect I would get until the manuscript was completed. I looked at the figure. It amounted to more than I needed. God takes it seriously when he tells us he, would, he will care for and protect us. As I found out in the case of the Gilders for the trip to Russia, God always has more for us 
than we would think of asking. Corey found that not only does God require us to give of ourselves from a place of faith, but also that God is worthy of our faith. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Praise be to God who is unchanging in pursuing his people. Praise be to God whose holy standards do not change despite circumstances. Praise be to God who lavishly blesses us until there is no more need. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are unchanging. In your glorious perfection, you have no need for change. No one and nothing else in the whole universe can say this. Your unchanging love for us is such a comfort. And your faithfulness to keep your promises frees us to live in faith. But your unchanging standards mean that we, a fickle people, often fall short. We confess that we rob you by withholding all of ourselves, for we have been purchased with a price. Please, Lord, strengthen our faith in you. Help us to trust your provision for whatever you call us to. Help us to love you with all of our heart and soul and strength. And we thank you for our Savior, who gave in full so that now we can know the fullness of your blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.